there is a documentary film I watched 10 years ago that I've been thinking about a lot while working on this episode. That film was called How to Survive a Plague. The documentary opens in the earliest days of the AIDS epidemic when it was thought that AIDS was a disease that afflicts only gay men. which meant that there was no political motivation to study the disease politicians were saying that men deserve to die for being gay it is in this context that a few gay men came out to a very hostile public and demanded research into aids they eventually won but it took them some time to do it months then years an entire decade the movement was led by act up or aids coalition to unleash power and it changed the politics and power of queerdom all over the world we are living in a world that was shaped by that moment when you watch the documentary you see that as months and years pass and the movement progresses the original leaders of act up fall sick grow pale become thinner and die of aids young men seamlessly replace them but then they also grow sick grow pale and disappear other kinds of people begin to step into the movement queer people many poets and artists women who learn to then study clinical trials and learn to dispense medical information moms of dying young men in sneakers and mom jeans come out on the streets to protest that first generation of leaders the ones who died frightening and tragic deaths they never really got to see what they started they didn't know it but they played a crucial part in a long civilizational relay the taking the baton a distance and passing it on to the next runner on saturday july 8th we released a survey for mothers the objective was to build a collective of the wisdom of working mothers ask them for their needs and their hacks how can families and businesses best enable working mothers and how can working mothers enable themselves as of writing this it's been a week since we put out the survey 648 mothers replied we've been able to look at the results and spot some strong signals some very insightful ideas some gaping holes and many profoundly humbling stories If you work in HR or are a people leader or a person who holds political power or a friend or a family of a working mother listen to this If you are a working father please listen to this In this episode we will tell you what working mothers told us But this episode itself is not the completion of the project This is the start of a longer one This episode only carries about a short distance I'll tell you more when we get there I'm your host Neha Vakharia and this is Costa Company. At the very outset let me say that the data we are going to talk about today is shaped by the demographic the survey reached. The Ken sadly doesn't collect demographic data of its readers, but I would think that most of the women who responded will belong in the knowledge workforce. With that in place, we begin. 
and we begin first with the good news there is good news if you compare the data of working women who became mothers more than 5 years ago that is women who became moms in 2018 or before with newer moms moms who became moms after 2018 you see a strong improvement in workplace support for women the percentage of women who had access to paid maternity leave before 2018 is 64% compared to 84% among women who became moms after Work from home as an option increased from 43% in the cohort of moms who became moms before 2018 compared to 60% to the newer moms. The percentage of working mothers who had managers who helped them ramp up and ramp down grew from 21% in that earlier cohort to 25% in the later cohort. The availability for sick leave for moms also grew from 15.2 to 18%. The access to childcare grew from 10 to 11%. When it comes to workplace amenities for women the needle has moved in all directions. Next is my absolute favorite data point. Only 60% of women who became mothers more than 10 years ago say they had their spouses who support them in child rearing. Women who became mothers between 5 and 10 years ago say that 70% of their partners participated in child rearing. But in the last 5 years that number has jumped to 80%. 80% of our newest moms said that their spouses shared caregiving responsibilities. None of this says anything about the quality or quantity of the sharing, but it's a heartening signal. If you wanted a reason to give a man in your life a flower, let this be it. Men are fighting alongside us. When it came to workplaces that provided amenities to working mothers, The largest businesses do better than the smallest ones on all counts except one I'll tell you about that one count in a bit 82% of women who worked in large businesses had access to paid maternity leave compared to 64% in small and medium businesses and 56% of women who worked in startups 13% of women who worked in large companies had access to childcare facilities compared to 7% at SMEs and 4% at startups When it came to extra sick leave, work from home, mentorship, assistance from managers and delayed performance appraisals, larger companies tend to do better than smaller companies and startups. This should not be surprising. Larger companies have more money to invest in their employees. But when it comes to flexibility or flexible working hours, which our survey also tells us is among the foremost needs of working mothers, smaller businesses and startups can compete neck and neck with larger companies. I then found out that there's a startup that has built an entire business model around this. You're going to hear from Shreya, founder of Flexibees, a startup that connects highly skilled women with part-time high-quality work. So, uh, I think at the very beginning actually when we started that thing talking about the women uh, side problem and we all resonated a lot on it. one thing we also felt strongly about that the solution has to make sense even for businesses so we started talking to businesses about flexible models because that is what we were giving to the women and we um, actually found a way to make it very interesting for the businesses also especially small businesses at that time really understood the benefit of hiring experienced people through models that are more affordable for them and that are very agile for them So imagine that you want to hire somebody who has say five years of experience in say marketing or sales or uh, writing or you know finance or HR. 
but as a small business you go to the market today it may be untenable for you to hire that experience so you may end up hiring freshers who are good for certain roles but not for every kind of role um, and and or else you would stretch your existing team you would yourself as founder don multiple caps and that's not that's not great too so what we gave businesses was the ability to hire experienced talent but through part time models through project based models which were far more affordable for them and as well as uh, to be able to hire talent from anywhere through the remote uh, ecosystem that we created so for a small business today if they are not able to compete with say the larger organizations on say compensation flexibility is the currency that they can compete and outsmart businesses larger businesses on flexibility being giving that ability for that person to work from anywhere and we ourselves as a small business have been able to use that in our own hiring can we zoom in on what flexibility entails what are the components of flexibility yeah so there are three broad ones that we speak of one is part time so the ability to work for fewer hours a day and that translates into the ability to hire for fewer hours a day and that could go from say 2 to 3 hours per day to 5 to 6 hours per day and now in fact we also do uh, you know full time but that you know works in a remote arrangement which brings me to the second component of flexibility which is the location that you're working from now that uh, for us 99% of our roles are fully remote there could be a certain proportion which works in a hybrid manner but the rest of it are fully remote that is the second aspect of flexibility and the third aspect of flexibility is being able to hire on a say project basis smaller businesses are much better suited for young mothers who seek flexibility above childcare or paid maternity leave or better ramp up and ramp down facilities smaller businesses share from flexibees also tells us are realizing that part time highly skilled mothers allows them to scale up and down more easily and hire excellent candidates that they would not have otherwise been able to afford next we come to childcare or daycare this is a slightly dismal story we'll get to it after the break do you know who is india's largest operator of supermarkets clothing outlets and electronic stores I'm not going to give you any prizes for guessing. It is Reliance Retail. The company which is still unlisted became the hottest cake in the grey market for quite a while. In 2019 its shares were going for 400 rupees a piece and by 2021 they were selling for 4000. As you can imagine it almost brought about a gold rush of sorts. Now a lot of Reliance Retail's investors had their hopes pinned on the company going for an IPO but a little more than a week ago they were met with quite a surprise and it wasn't the good kind the company announced that it would effectively cancel the holdings of its minority investors and offered them 1362 rupees per share basically the company was telling its investors that their reliance retail shares had been cancelled it left many very confused and one thing that they could not understand was that at the time of the announcement reliance retail shares were trading in the unlisted market at over twice that price after many investors had burnt their fingers similarly with policy bazaar and paytm not long ago this once again highlighted the fact that trading in the unlisted market is not everybody's cup of tea but 
why did Reliance Retail do this? And did its investors miss something important? To find out, listen to the latest episode of my podcast, Daybreak. You'll find the link to the episode in the show notes of this one. I am Snigdha Sharma from the Ken Audio team. Thank you for listening to us. Do not forget to share, follow and rate our podcast on whatever platform you are tuned into. Back to Sneha now. Daycare, it appears, presents a glaring gap. As per law, organizations with over 50 employees must provide childcare facilities to mothers. Our survey tells us that two of 53 moms working in startups had access to childcare near the workplace. Five out of 71 women who worked in small and medium businesses had access to daycare. And even in larger companies, only 36 of 276 moms had access to childcare. The law was passed in 2017, but its implementation is weak. We also see that only 21% of all mothers availed daycare facilities at all, even outside of what their workplaces could offer. This in spite of the fact that mothers claim to really value daycare. They want daycare. Childcare facility was the third most important workplace policy according to working mothers we surveyed. A lot of comments we received explain this. They indicate that mothers don't trust the daycare facilities available to them. They frequently cite how poor daycare facilities are even when they go look for it on the free market. Our daycare infrastructure specifically and pointedly is failing us. And in this context, most workplaces are also not compliant with labor laws. Then I come to the toughest question in the survey of all. We asked mothers, What are some difficult emotions you experienced that came in the way of your ability to balance work and motherhood? What I'm now going to do is pick a random sample, a string of responses and read them out to you. I promise I'm going to pick them at random. I'm scrolling through them. Guilt. Guilt trying to do justice to each role. Guilt, selfishness, fatigue. I always feel guilty that I'm not giving my 100% to both my work and my family. Just stress of balancing multiple responsibilities. Guilt. Guilt. Guilt, anxiety, fear, sadness. Guilt, overwhelmed, tired, irritated. Guilt of not being there for the kids. I feel extremely guilty for not being able to give time to my little one. The guilt of leaving an infant for my personal ambitions. Guilt. Guilt. Feelings of inadequacy. Guilt. Feelings of guilt leaving my child with relatives. That I wasn't doing the best at either place and I was always coming up short. Guilt. And on and on. (sighs) You know, a lot of times the women who are, you know, who are working full time, uh, you know, clarified these are women who are working full time. They feel the guilt because their workplace is not, you know, not letting them say engage with their family or their child the way they need to. And, and, you know, they have a certain expectation from themselves on how they need to engage with their, their children. So there is that constant tussle. They would need to say leave at five o'clock in the evening to go and pick their child up from daycare. And it's not that they went home and they didn't work. They went home and they worked. They would log in. They would do meetings. They would do everything. But their own team, their own managers, in spite of having all the policy effectiveness, were not able to see them as contributing the same way as somebody who would reach office at, say, 10 in the morning and stay back till 10 at night. Right? So it's, you know, that there is that, you know, for a working woman, who's at office and who's working 
she she still feels that she's neither making you know her workplace is not entirely satisfied her home life is uh, you know is also not the way that she would want her you know her, her home life to be and there is that constant guilt guilt is a feeling that you're doing something really bad that you're letting someone down but guilt is also learned and if so many women are experiencing guilt then that guilt is not individual it is structural we learn the expectations that we then feel like we are failing that is what structural guilt is made of this guilt affects our confidence it acts as a burden that ne- never lets us feel at peace with ourselves now you'll hear from deepa another founder at flexibees so here this is so if we can articulate what was the expectation reality mismatch between um uh what you ex- how you expected the workforce to accommodate you and how in fact and not just the workforce i'm guessing you have a partner uh there is other family um what was the expectation reality mismatch there so the expectation so we know that it's a life transition right but um we have an expectation that we will be helped somehow that um that there is there that um like everyone knows it's to to uh, bring up a baby takes a village and then you will you will get the help that you need um so when you start putting that help together is where little by little we keep facing those expectation mismatches so i had assumed that uh, we will always have um family with us parents with us who will be able to help out and step in and all of that so that for various reasons uh, couldn't happen uh, then um, i had assumed that um, we will be able to make up for it by hiring enough support and as as privileged as we are with our backgrounds and um uh, financial position we should it should work right so then it's then we understood and that expectation that money can solve a problem also failed one kind of expectation is that we will receive the support of our communities when we become mothers for various reasons that sometimes doesn't pan out as mentioned above paid facilities that can be bought off the free market can sometimes fail to meet a mother's standards this disproportionately places the burden of child rearing on mothers another peculiar reason for this guilt appears to be that women often see themselves set themselves up to do very difficult amounts of caregiving work and caregiving has gone so unseen as the difficult labor it is through so much of history that we don't see it ourselves when we sign up to it and we're like why am i not able to do this and then we internalize that failure as guilt there is this expectation that i will be treated like a professional it's like it's like a very basic expectation or assumption so that of course went for a toss you are treated like a mother first and then uh, it's it's like how are you going to overcome this liability tell me that you are a handicapped person you have this baby attached to you you tell me how you will overcome that then we will talk about your brains so it's all, almost became like that a lot of the um gendered and discriminatory conversations which i used to face in interviews so there that's that's a big uh, mismatch and non availability of work right which suited my caliber as well as gave me the flexibility 
So even if I didn't want to join the traditional spaces which talked like this, there were no other spaces I could join either, right? And uh, uh, yeah, so save for um, starting a, a home business or whatever, completely changing tra trajectories, there were not options available. So actually a lot of, lot of expectations failed systemically. The guilt mothers structurally experience comes from bad expectations. It comes from the idea that children belong in a world far away from the workplace and are the responsibilities of the parents, most especially the mother. This idea is further entrenched by how workplaces treat mothers. But in fact, children belong to communities. They are the responsibility of communities and they must be integrated like they are part of the community. This brings us back to what we discussed a little earlier about daycare. Many women who responded to the survey told us that they wished they could just take their nannies and babies to office sometime, carpool with their children to daycare, have childcare integrated into the fabric of business so they wouldn't feel so conflicted all the time. Guilt is the toughest and most pervasive of all emotions mothers are experiencing. And this asks that businesses rethink the role children and childcare play in the workplace. Another extension of this very same guilt is the matter of paternity leave. Around half of the survey respondents say they know at least one working father in their workplace who took paternity leave. This means that at least half of them have experienced normalized paternity leave. But here is where we see how unequally the caregiving is. While the average duration of maternity leave is between six months and a year, the average duration of paternity leave is between a week and two weeks. You know, which is the duration of a pleasant holiday. I was saying that there are these case studies, right? I mean, where in the UK, for example, paternity leaves were extended to, to much longer, but nobody ended up taking them. So there is definitely a cultural, uh, you know, mindset of, um, either not taking paternity leave because you feel that it will hurt you, it will damage your chances at the workplace, uh, it will not be looked at, you know, in, in the same way that, say, a maternity leave is looked at for a woman. So there is that aspect. And also, I mean, men uh, tend to feel perhaps that in the first few months of a child's, uh, you know, being born, there is less that they can contribute. So I've also heard of cases where men have taken those leaves and gone on holiday. The problem is both at the workplace and in society, right? And how, uh, you know, gendered roles are and role and, and expectations are that uh, people put on themselves. And uh, at the workplace, where even if a man today wants to take the full extent of the paternity leave, uh, he feels that he cannot because it will be looked at differently. I mean, so we, I mean, we are not satisfied. That's not what that means. But uh, we have to honor the progress we are making and we know how much we have to go. But doesn't mean we are content or happy. But that's, that's why we are in this business of being part of the change. Many women wrote in demanding that at least as a signaling device, but as much more, paternity leave must be made as long as maternity leave to indicate that the mother is not the person solely responsible for the care of the child and to create a culture where the penalty of parenthood is distributed as alongside the benefit more equally within the community and between partners. We also asked women this, with the benefit of hindsight, now what would your ideal duration of maternity leave be, given what you know now? 
we haven't done a very good job of standardizing the data that we got back but it looks like many women are happy with 6 months and some with as little as 3 months but more women tend towards wanting 9 months to 12 months as their ideal duration of maternity leave 9 months seems like a good time um for a maternity leave because then you also you know apart from those uh, mandatory that mandatory time of breast breastfeeding you are also able to work your child around uh getting the baby used to other sorts of foods and all that so i think 9 months or at least a little over 6 months you know at least 7 to 8 would be ideal this is to say that the duration of paid maternity leave while sufficient for some is inadequate for others many others felt the need to take a career break this is where mothers began to experience bias one of the interviews deepa was asked uh, like uh, if uh, if we had an issue and if it was in the midnight and we had to call you would you be able to pick up the phone this was a question she was asked in an interview and you know it stayed with us what what is that question why does anybody be you know why should anybody pick up the phone at midnight and solve a problem why would that be okay for any person right our survey was not able to capture any particular data about bias but other people's research tells us that mothers when they return to the workplace are much likely to be hired for a new role and when they are hired are hired at a lowest salary than non mothers Pay transparency was listed by some survey respondents as a way to ensure that returning mothers are not systematically disadvantaged because of their career break. This is something we've talked about at length in the pilot episode of Costa Company, which I really would urge you to check out. Pay transparency also protects mothers from added and undue underconfidence. Okay, that's where we've gotten so far. We now know that the needle has moved and women have more support in the shape of friendly workplace policies than even 5 years ago. Working fathers are supporting their wives and partners in childcare in greater numbers than ever, even if unequal. We learned that bigger businesses tend to provide better infrastructure for working mothers, but small and medium-sized businesses tend to provide more flexibility. We learned that child care and day care support infrastructure remains inadequate and that most businesses even the big ones are not compliant with the labor laws we learned that the guilt was the single most difficult feeling working mothers experience this has plenty to do with difficult expectations placed on them and that caregiving is not understood to be as challenging and consuming as it in fact is we learned that the guilt is structural which also then makes resisting that guilt a necessary political act we learned about the fact that half our workplaces have men who take paternal leave but they tend to take less than a couple of weeks and a largest proportion of mothers would take prefer to take a maternity break longer than 6 months closer to 9 months perhaps We learned that pay parity is necessary to protect mothers who wish to take a longer maternity break. So you know how earlier in the episode I mentioned that women who became mothers after 2018 were offered many more supportive policies at their workplaces than women who came who became mothers before. This is not random. 
In 2017, the Parliament amended the Maternity Benefit Act to make it mandatory for businesses with over 50 employees to provide childcare facilities to mothers, and for all businesses to provide 26 weeks of paid maternity leave. This was a turning point for mothers in the workplace. You will now hear from Jinsi Workies, who is one woman responsible for making that bill an act. In July 2016, Jinsi had just found out that she was expecting, and she saw in a newspaper that the Rajya Sabha had passed a bill that gave all working mothers six-month maternity leave around the time of delivery. Jinsi thought that this meant the bill had already become law. Only thing I remembered was Rajya Sabha is the upper house and Lok Sabha is the lower house. So I thought, obviously, you know, it's like at home, you know, usually the one. you know uh, the one with a higher power says something that becomes a law so i, I applied the same logic and i thought okay rajya sabha is telling that uh, six months um, leave uh, will be there for mothers and uh, and also unfortunately that uh, maternity bill was passed on the last day of the monsoon session and i had forgotten that too that you know parliament sessions happen only during monsoon uh, winter and budget In the first month of her pregnancy, then Chinsi found out that for the bill to become an act, it would need to be passed in the Lok Sabha. So Chinsi created a Change.org petition, just a petition to make the bill a law. A few weeks after that, someone from Change.org got in touch. She said she really wanted to help promote the petition. So, um, so someone from Change.org, her name is Soumya. Uh, she used to work with Change.org. She reached reached out. and i was very skeptical i said i i was just you know i was wondering what did she say to you when she reached out so uh, she said i i saw your petition and i want to help you uh, was she also a mom is she also a mom no 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 she was she was not she's not a mom okay so uh, i was taken aback i i wondered like why suddenly uh, interest uh, on this petition so uh, she helped get the p- petition viral uh, sending out mass emails to uh, people who Uh, have changed our accounts and asking them to sign this petition highlighting uh, the importance of this bill also she uh, was able to get me inside info like you know what's actually happening in the parliament and try to also see if she could connect me um, with the pas of uh, the ministers etc with the increased attention from change.org jinsi began to write emails from ministers cold emails she says she has gathered the emails of many high profile ministers and she showed at least some of those addresses are real she was hoping that the bill would get passed in the winter session but this is 2016 and in november 2016 demonetization happened that winter session of parliament was cancelled this meant that it was getting less and less likely that the law would get passed before jinsi delivered her baby so there was one particular day in feb and uh, i was working from home that day hmm. was very frustrated very angry that this bill is going nowhere and uh, also you know i was really advanced in my pregnancy and i was also dealing with gestational diabetes and all that and i wrote a long email i i told i am uh, i think that time i was 37 or 36 weeks pregnant oh wow so uh, i mentioned that i said i am 30 years old um I have gestational diabetes. I've been working like I I started working the day I graduated. So I've never like really taken a break because merely because I couldn't afford to take one. So uh, I I mentioned all this. I said that uh, government sector employees are already getting um, six months uh, maternity leave plus two years of childcare 
and they have stable secure jobs which is not true for uh, private employees so i write all this i send this email it is addressed to uh, the prime minister bandaru dattatre uh, labor ministry menaka um, gandhi wcd ministry everyone everyone is in that email and then i don't know what happens to me i just i do a reply all to the same email and though i do a reply all i address the mail to menaka ma'am so i write menaka ma'am um, uh, i know um, you know uh, i know you will not do anything about this uh, because unfortunately uh, for me i am a working woman in india and we don't have any uh, place here if i was a dog if i was a pregnant dog you would definitely do something about this so i i i send the email and uh, this is just before lunch break so that day i'm working from home and i come back from lunch and i see one email uh, from the wcd ministry they have forwarded my email to someone from the uh, labor ministry i i think it was some mr khaldi i don't remember and this is what they write in the email please see the uh, uh, email the uh, undersigned email from ms jinsi and please take appropriate action this was all they wrote and that's when i freaked out i thought <laughs> appropriate action can mean anything it can mean uh, the bill is passed it can also mean i am behind bars for writing all this in an email uh, fortunately for me uh, by that time uh, menaka gandhi replied to me one on one so and she wrote i am extremely sorry that this did not happen i will try and pass it in the in the next session which was the budget session eventually menaka gandhi introduced the bill on the floor of the parliament on the first day of the budget session in march 2017 but by then jinsi had already delivered her baby the law would not apply to her the law became effective first uh, april 2017 onwards so again I, while i was happy it became a law uh, i was still sad that i wouldn't uh, because i really like you know i first of all to even do such a thing you know was huge for me i, I never no background you can you can tell already how bad my civics uh, and you know law background is so despite all that me doing this uh, and not getting the benefit was a little uh, not so it was not a good if you thought this is where jinsi backs down you're wrong uh then uh, i realized of course during this journey i realized there are many mothers like me who wanted a retrospective aspect so then again we started uh, i found those group of other parents who were, who who would really benefit with the retrospective aspect and again we started like uh, this time tweeting and kind of just finding our support system and then uh, i think on somewhere in april i think it was 17th april uh the labor ministry comes out with a faq okay so uh, which says uh can this bill be uh, uh, be a, be a, you know can this bill accommodate women who have given birth uh, after jan and have not completed you know 3 months of maternity leave as on uh, 1st april and all that so the answer was yes in short that faq the crux of the faq was any mother who has given birth after 1st 1st or 2nd jan 2017 was eligible 
for a six month uh, paid maternity leave and that was the happiest day of my life this is the day she fully became entitled to full six months maternity leave and retrospectively in her motherhood journey this was the happiest day of her life jinsi believes that the state can be mobilized to make big changes at scale and it is sometimes easier to get the state to do it than businesses we shouldn't discount the role of the state in impacting change or give up before we even try remember the story with which i started the story of act up activists and how we don't know the role we are playing in the long civilizational rally jinsi doesn't work in public policy nor is she a minister or a lawyer she played no role in the drafting of the bill but she lobbed it over the finish line that's the role she played and i love personally the idea of acting up unleashing power the goal is not to acquire power or consolidate power the goal is to exercise it this brings us to the end of the podcast episode and where we go from here what we have here this survey these results are a very rudimentary version of what they could be there are many things we haven't been able to cover like how does motherhood affect a woman's career in the longer term what do hr and people leaders think of the costs and benefits of different policies maybe you would like to add questions to this survey maybe you would like to see the survey results yourself perhaps you would like the results to be made public where can we go from here I have some very early ideas but I want to hear from you. Please please write to us at podcasts@the-ken.com. Tell me how we can take this baton some more distance. This episode of Costa Company was written, hosted and produced by Sneha Vakharia with audio engineering by Rajiv Sen. Elon Musk and the kind of leader that he is and the way that he is running Twitter has hijacked all online chatter. Musk's leadership is at the center of all debates surrounding Twitter. And rightfully so, because a leader's influence on the company's culture is undisputably important. We hear the phrase tone at the top all the time. But imagine this. A CEO has just delivered an inspiring message about change and innovation and culture. at a town hall there's this new employee sitting in the audience he's enamored with the message he's inspired and it seems to be working he then turns to his friend sitting next to him who's been in the company for 5 plus years and asks him a simple question hey the ceo is saying all this but does it actually translate to something in real life remember this moment is important the answer he's going to get is going to greatly influence the way he looks at the company His friend nonchalantly responds, "These kind of town halls keep happening, but nothing really changes honestly." There goes your company culture. There goes your return on investment in innovation. Company culture cannot and does not emanate from one person. The founder cannot single-handedly be responsible for company culture. So who then really is responsible? I have an answer and this is going to be interesting. influencers not social media influencers but the real life influencers in the workplace that's right they live among us they work in our offices walking around like regular people they are scattered through the ranks 
in different roles and across departments they don't see their invisible superpower they don't know that they are influencers next week on cost company how to spot an influencer at the workplace and how you could be one too tune in next week to find out i'm your other host aksha and thank you for listening <laughs>